Let's bow together in prayer. Our great God and Father in heaven, we're thankful that we can meet together in the middle of this week and that we can sing strong hymns from the history of your church, songs by which your people have long praised you and thanked you and prayed to you concerning the coming of our Lord, his incarnation and death for our sakes on the cross. We are thankful, O God, for the blessings of salvation that we have received by union with your Son. And we pray that throughout our lives we would grow in gratitude for that grace and covenant mercy. We're thankful for the providence of this week. We're thankful for the prayers that you have answered, for brothers and sisters whom you have helped and even now are helping. We continue to pray, O Lord, that your blessing would be upon those who are ill, those who are recovering from surgeries, those who are preparing for them, those who are traveling away from us, those who are moving away from us. We pray that you would be with them and make them fruitful in the places where they go. We ask your blessing upon our nation, O God, that you would raise up God-fearing men to lead us and turn back the pride and rebellion that has gripped this land, we pray, for rather a spirit of humility and repentance and revival among the citizens of this nation, and that you would bless your church, not only here, but in all lands, in all nations, so God, that she would be strong and free and beautiful, that she would be faithful and fruitful, even as the bride of Christ. Bless us tonight as we consider together truths of your word that have long been studied and proclaimed and celebrated by your people. We pray, O God, that we would grow as we reflect upon that heritage of faith this evening. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to start by reading two passages of Scripture. If you want to follow along, they're in 1 Corinthians 15, where I'm only going to read verses 1 through 5, and then Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, or you can just listen Uh, These two verses, or these two passages rather, will kind of introduce our theme this evening. Uh, This summer, we are uh, doing a little bit of church history. It is uh, kind of highlights from church history, not comprehensive in any way. Uh, But uh, each of us, Dane, Caleb, and myself, have kind of taken a different aspect of church history to focus upon. And so, uh, while Dane kind of introduced the study the importance of studying church history. Uh, he's, he's moved on from that to look at some, uh, some events, uh, some um, key turning points, key moments in uh, uh, various periods of the church as we think about the early church, the medieval church, and, and then later in the Reformation and post-Reformation period. Uh, Caleb's been introducing individuals to us, great heroes of the faith, uh, a couple of great uh, lectures that he's given us on uh, heroes from the past. And then In my first lecture, I talked to you a little bit about a document from the early church, the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve, part of the collection that we think of as the Apostolic Fathers, a book that, or a little treatise that was probably composed during the time that the last few books of the New Testament were being written. And tonight, we're going to fast forward a little bit as we've kind of moved into the Middle Ages and the medieval period, and we're going to look at a work by St. Anselm, uh, Cur Deus Homo, Right? Why the God-man, or why God became man, traditionally rendered. Uh, and it focuses upon answering challenges concerning Christ's incarnation and atonement. Uh, why did God become man? 
And how is his incarnation and atonement the answer to that question? So before we get into an uninspired document, I want to just begin by reading a couple of passages from God's own word. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And then in Romans chapter 5, I'll read verses 12 to 21. It's a very important passage for St. Anselm in this work, although he's not going to exegete it, he's not going to expound it, we'll talk about why that is in just a minute, but it underlies most of his discussion in this work. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where, when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ." Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus far God's word. Now you have a study guide, but unlike my last lecture where I put the entire text of the Didache in the study guide, uh, that is not the case here. I have given you a PDF, public domain version, in the online resource folder that's almost 90 pages. So uh, you can look at that online or you can print that out if you want to. 
Or, if you want a more modern translation, I would highly recommend, uh, only if you're really interested after tonight, in picking up this little soft cover book. It's not very expensive. It has all of St. Anselm of Canterbury's major works in it, including some that are much more difficult than the one we're reading tonight. Uh, but it has a more modern translation of why God became man uh, that is very, very readable, very accessible, and, uh, and I think you will find uh, perhaps easier to follow than the public domain translations, which by nature of being in the public domain have to be older and so are sometimes not quite as clear as, uh, as modern tra- texts might be. Now, in your study guide, I've given you a one-page handout of the work that we're looking at tonight and then an expansive outline, a study outline, with many quotations from the work. And I've used the public domain translation for almost all of these quotations, uh, but, uh, uh, but I think you will find them nevertheless uh, easy to follow, and we'll talk about as many of them as we possibly can tonight. St. Anselm is my favorite medieval theologian. Uh, I love Thomas Aquinas, uh, but... Anselm has for many, many years been my favorite theologian uh, from this period. Uh, He lived from 1033 till 1109. He was a Benedictine monk, a church leader, preeminently a philosopher who did more philosophically oriented theology. He was a brilliant theologian, and he made some very important contributions to the development of arguments concerning the existence of God. For instance, uh, he wrote a work called Proslogion, uh, in which he presents what came to be known as the ontological argument for God, which is really a precursor of reformed presuppositional apologetics. Uh, In fact, Anselm, as you're reading him, if you didn't know that he was living in the 11th century, you might assume, depending on how old the translation is, you might assume that you're reading a Reformed theologian uh, from the modern period. In many, many ways, his theology kind of reflects some of what we think of as later Reformed developments. But of course, they weren't later Reformed developments. They were simply uh, affirmations of biblical uh, theology. But Anselm is primarily a philosopher, and that's reflected in his work. That does make some of his work more difficult to follow. So, Quarter Deus Homo is going to be a relatively easy work to read, I think, for most Christians, uh, whereas Proslogion is difficult for advanced theologians. Uh, and uh, and it, is, it is discussed uh, by, by theologians to this very day uh, who continue to wrestle with the ideas and exactly uh, what Anselm is communicating there. Uh, Anselm really, in his best-known works, deals with the existence of God, the incarnation, and the atonement. And it's those latter two topics that are particularly in view in Why God Became Man. Uh, Anselm is, was really, we would say, Italian, even though it, it might be a little anachronistic to, to say that in some ways, but, but he's basically from the region of Italy. And then he serves in a monastery in France, and then he is made Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, which, of course, we associate with the United Kingdom and, and, and uh, Great Britain. Uh, and that is really what he is remembered best for. So he was quite the multicultural or multinational uh, character. He is oftentimes thought of as the first of the scholastic theologians, and depending on how you feel about scholastic theology, that might be uh, praise or condemnation. 
uh, but his work really does establish kind of a basis for thinking more analytically about doctrine and presenting that in that more scholastic manner. Now, the work that we're looking at tonight, Cordideus Homo, again, why the God-man, right? Why God-man, literally, or why God became man, traditionally, is written as a conversation between Anselm and his interlocutor, whose name is Boso, not Bozo, right? He's not a Bozo, but is Boso. Uh, Boso is a Christian. Uh, he is an Orthodox Christian. He is a friendly uh, uh, interlocutor with Anselm. Anselm says at the beginning of the work that he wants to kind of frame it this way uh, that as a discussion to make this work more accessible to the average Christian, to lay people. Uh, and what he's doing is discussing with Boso the questions that Christians are hearing in the 11th century from their pagan neighbors. Now, one of the things that's important to remember is that by this time, uh, the Muslim uh, influence, the Muslim control of, of much of Europe, it, it, Islam has become a thing. Uh, the Ottoman Empire and the various uh, incursions by Muslim leaders have, have led to uh, increased contact between Christians and, and others who are of the Islamic faith. And there are also many Jews that Christians in different areas are in contact with. And the questions that are arising in this work are primarily the kinds of questions that you are going to hear from a Muslim or from a Jew who has not embraced Jesus as the Messiah. So it's not dealing so much with a heretical Christian sect. It's not dealing with questions that are arising from Greek philosophy, at least not in its original form. Some of that gets translated into Islam. Uh, but, uh, but it's really thinking more about kind of those contemporary challenges uh, why would God become man? To the Jews, that would be a blasphemous thought. To the uh, Muslims, it would be an incomprehensible thought, right? Uh, the Muslims would deny the need for atonement, and the Jews, of course, would deny uh, the, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that incarnation really is even a possibility in their, in their scheme of God's nature and purpose. Now, in Cordideus Homo, Anselm is not going to do exegetical theology. By that, I mean he is not going to cite any biblical proof texts. There will be a few passages that are referred to in the, in the discussion, but not in the sense of Anselm seeking to prove anything from the Bible. You could say that this is an, a, a weakness of the work, but I would say that it's simply not the kind of work Anselm is trying to write. Other theologians were and would later write those very kinds of treatises, but that's not what Anselm is doing. Anselm is trying to demonstrate that the incarnation and the atoning work of Christ are entirely reasonable, rational propositions, that these doctrines make sense, that you can present logical reasons for accepting these ideas, and he is not denying the importance, the authority, even the primacy of sacred scripture. We'll see that in just a moment at the beginning of the work. But what he's trying to prove is that even those who do not accept the New Testament scriptures, for example, can be shown that these ideas are logically coherent. 
and that they are entirely reasonable conclusions to draw based upon what even an unbeliever can know about God. Now, while he's not doing any proof texting, while he's not doing any exegesis or exposition of Scripture, which in places would significantly strengthen his argument. We'll talk about a couple of examples of that tonight. Uh, There are a number of places where Anselm is doing what later modern theologians will call biblical theology, and he does it exceptionally well. There are some parts of this work that are just breathtakingly beautiful in the way that Anselm draws out and begins to unpack why the Virgin Mary Why is she important, right? Why this Adam-Christ parallel? How does Christ's work uh, parallel and fulfill Adam's original relationship and purpose with God in the garden? Now, Cordodeus Homo is divided into two books. Uh, The first book is really much longer than the second one, but both of them have almost the same number of chapters. Now, when we say chapters, these are pretty short chapters for the most part. Some of them are as short as a paragraph or two or three. Some of them are several pages long, but it's not a a lengthy work. Most translations, it's going to be 85 to 100 pages, depending on, you know, kind of the presentation, the font uh, of the page. Um, It is important to note that Cordodeus Homo is not an attempt at an exhaustive treatment of the Incarnation or the Atonement. It is not even as complete as Anselm originally wanted it to be, and he explains that in the preface. He says, as he was beginning to do this work, which took him a few years to actually finish, because he was busy as the archbishop and uh, you know, had, his, had his finger in a lot of different projects, uh, as he's doing this work, those who are reading it, are profiting so much from it and enjoying it so much that they begin copying it and distributing it. <laughs> so you basically have the early editions of the book incomplete already going to the publisher. And you could think about the later use of like serial publications where you, ha- you have certain like very famous novels, for example, that began as new- newspaper articles, and every week you're waiting for the next, next chapter to come out. Well, th- there was almost a sense of that where Anselm realizes people are-, people are already reading the book, and I'm not done with the book. And so he has to hurry to finish up, and he acknowledges uh, at-, at the beginning of the work that it did not cover all of the ground that he hoped it would. But even if he had had the opportunity to make it as complete as he intended, it would not have been an exhaustive treatment because he is not trying to exegete passages about this. So this is not all that you need to know about the Incarnation and the Atonement, but what he presents will be tremendously helpful and encouraging, I think, to you. Well, let me give you just kind of an overview of some of the things that are going to be taught and accomplished, you know, proven by this work, and then I want to just kind of walk through it and, uh, and show you some of what Anselm says. I've given you seven points. This is on the second page of your outline, the back of the front. Um, seven points uh, to kind of, kind of summarize this uh, in, a, in a, what I hope is a simple way. Man was made sinless in order to enjoy communion with God in glory. That is the central purpose uh, of man's existence. Man sinned and incurred a debt by failing to give God what was owed. Now, you're immediately going to see a difference between the way that Anselm draws this out and some, much, much later, Reformed theologians 
But I will say that Anselm's view is entirely consistent with many Reformed uh, theologians and the way that they've thought about that covenantal relationship. And I would argue that Anselm's is very explicitly biblical. Ironically enough, he's not using Bible passages to prove this, and yet he is clearly drawing on the content of Scripture in his affirmations here. Number three, God's plan for mankind could not be accomplished unless sin was forgiven. Number four, man was obligated to pay the debt of sin, but sinful man was incapable of doing so. Number five, God was capable of paying the debt of sin, but man was the one who was required to pay it. Number six, Christ is the God-man. Truly God and truly man, sinless, capable, and willing to redeem mankind. And number seven, he alone could accomplish what could not be accomplished in any other way. So God is capable, and yet man is responsible. Man owes it, but he is incapable of paying it. Christ, as the God-man, is both able and qualified to stand in the place of Adam and do what no other man could. Man could not be saved without the incarnation of the Son of God to redeem us. And so Anselm is confronted at the very beginning of the book with questions like, well, why can't God simply forgive sins just based upon his mercy? If he loves man so much, if he wants fellowship with man, why does, you know, say you're sorry, and God says, okay, well, forget about it, right? We'll just pretend like it didn't happen. Anselm is having to answer questions like that. Uh, why, Why is the incarnation not inherently demeaning to God? Right? You're saying that God became a, a man, a creature, uh, fallible, weak. Uh, this is undignified to think of God in this way. That's something that both uh, Islamic and uh, Judaic critics were saying at, at the time and, and, and would say uh, in the years after. Now, the church fathers, I think it's important to note, discussed whether the incarnation would still be necessary even if Adam had not sinned. This came up in our live stream Q&A a couple of years ago. I don't know if you remember. Um, And I talked a little bit about it at that time. I said that I do think that the incarnation was necessary even if Adam had not sinned. That the the incarnation is uh, part of the telos of creation, that there was always going to be this incarnation. That was something that different church fathers uh, discussed in different ways. Anselm is not addressing that question. And so it would be a mistake to say, well, St. Anselm says that the incarnation is strictly for atonement. That's not actually what he says in this work. He does say that God becomes man preeminently in order to redeem man and bring man, reconcile man back to God. But that's because he's assuming a post-lapsarian world a fallen state. He doesn't even contemplate the possibility of Adam not sinning, and then would Christ still come? The major way in which Cordodeus Homo advances the conversation is in Anselm's very helpful articulation of a satisfaction view of the atonement. Now, I don't want to say that Anselm is the first one to propose this. He certainly doesn't invent it. He is clearly working out of biblical texts, even though he's not making that explicit in the course of his argument. 
But there had been many different views of the atonement prior to this time, and and to some extent even after. Why did Christ have to die? What is his death ultimately accomplishing? You've probably heard of the ransom theory, that Christ was paying a debt to Satan in order to release man and reconcile him to God. That was an idea that some of the church fathers held. Other ideas of the atonement that you would hear is the Christus Victor view, for example, that Christ was triumphing over all of his enemies. Well, Colossians 2 says that was, in fact, one of the uh, consequences of the atoning work of the Lord. Some would say it's a demonstration of God's moral government. That's a, that's a view that would become important later in kind of the second period, second generation of the reference. Um, some of these ideas, by the way, that were debated uh, could, could be plausibly held together. You could say, well, yeah, Jesus accomplished a lot of things on the cross. He demonstrated the love of God. He demonstrated the, the justice of God, uh, his moral government, the horror of sin. Uh, he did triumph over the devil and death and all of his enemies. Like, th- these, these things don't have to be untrue for us to also say, but preeminently, preeminently, He is providing the sin offering by which the Father's wrath is satisfied and sin's guilt can be taken away. And that's what Anselm is proposing in this work in a way that truly advanced the conversation. Now, he is not as explicit as to to advocate something like penal substitutionary atonement which you'll be familiar with that terminology, at least some of you will be, the idea that Christ is being punished in the place of uh, our, uh, ourselves, right? He is taking our place upon that cross in, in just that one-for-one kind of forensic or legal fashion. Uh, Anselm does, is not that specific, but what he says is certainly consistent with that kind of conception of the atonement, although it wouldn't necessarily require uh, it to go quite that far. All right. Well, let's, let's work then into the text a little bit. And let me, let me take you now to, this is, I'm, I'm going to say this is page two because the number two is at the bottom. Technically, it's the third page in your handout. But I'm just going to use the numbers that are on your pages because I'm going to have to skip around probably tonight a little bit. Uh, but at the top of that page, why should we even consider these questions? We've already talked a little bit about the challenges to these doctrines that would have come from Islamic and Judaic neighbors of believers. But there's another reason that Christians ought to reflect upon these kinds of truths. And it's not because we are waiting to believe the things that God has satisfactorily proved to us in a way that our reason can accept. Anselm says this, quote, This they ask, not for the sake of attaining to faith by means of reason, but that they may be gladdened by understanding and meditating on those things which they believe. And that, as far as possible, they may be always ready to convince anyone who demands of them a reason of that hope which is in us. Well, he's obviously alluding to 1 Peter 3.15 there, right? He's practically quoting the passage. But what he says is, the Christians who are asking these kind of questions, why did Jesus have to die? Why did God have to become a man? Why couldn't God save us in some other way? This can be reasonably asked by people who believe that these things are true. Yes, I believe that Christ is the Son of God. Yes, I believe that He died on the cross so that my sins might be forgiven. But but why? Why? This is the question that we ask 
uh, children, when they are coming to profess faith, why did Jesus have to die? To forgive me for my sins. Right, but, but why did he have to die in order for your sins to be forgiven? Right? That, that's a reasonable question to ask. Believers accept these kinds of mysteries, these kinds of doctrines through faith. And that faith is given by God's grace. Anselm is very explicit about that, by the way. He says, we believe because of God's grace. We accept these truths because God's grace has brought us to faith in Jesus Christ. But one of the key phrases in Anselm's work, and kind of one of the key principles that's working out through his major works, and if you get an email from me, you'll see it at the bottom of my email. I told you Anselm was my favorite medieval theologian. It's credo ut intelligum. I believe in order that I might understand. I believe so that I can understand the things that I couldn't understand as, a, as an unbeliever. And this is not uh, irrational faith. This is not blind faith. This is not me closing my eyes and putting my hand over my heart and stepping out into the abyss and hoping that I land somewhere. But it's realizing that there are things about God and about his operation that, that I... My rational mind just can't, I can't wrap around it. I can't fully comprehend it. But I know, by God's grace, through faith, who Christ is and what he has done for me. And I'm trusting in him. But, but what Anselm realized is that when you believe in Jesus, suddenly you're able to see from the inside of the faith what you couldn't see outside there are things that you, you couldn't fully understand, and it's not, it's not that we're asking you know, potential converts as in evangelism, we're not asking them to pray and seek a burning in the bosom or something like that. No, that's not what we're doing. But Anselm's recognizing there are some of these mysteries that you can only understand on the inside as a believer. And as long as you're standing outside, you're not going to be able to see it. And so it's good for us not merely to say, I believe that God became man, I believe that Jesus died so that my sins might be forgiven, but to ask the question, why? Because in believing those things, I am better able, not fully able, but better able with the Spirit's help to understand why, and that will lead to greater joy in my faith. Notice on that second page, uh, number B or letter B, unbelievers were charging that the Christian faith insulted the dignity of God, that it was demeaning to God to think that he became a man. And yet Anselm says, rather than insulting God's majesty, the incarnation and atonement actually magnify it. They show us the greatness of God, the glory of God, in a way that we never otherwise would perceive. He says this, quote, We do no injustice or dishonor to God, but give him thanks with all the heart, praising and proclaiming the ineffable height of his compassion. For the more astonishing a thing it is, and beyond expectation, that he has restored us from so great and deserved ills in which we were to so great and unmerited blessings which we had forfeited by so much the more has he shown his more exceeding love and tenderness towards us. One of the things that Anselm was going to say at the end of the work is that the work of redemption is a greater miracle than the work of creation. The work of redemption is a greater miracle than the work of creation. You think that God creating all things out of nothing in the space of six days and all very good was impressive. It is. But wait until you see what he does in Christ. Because there he's creating out of nothing. Here, he's going to create out of enemies, out of rebels, out of defaced, degraded creatures. He's going to bring glory. He's going to bring glory to that which has fallen beneath 
the actual creational goodness that it once had. The Christian claim that God became man in the person of Christ and died on the cross so that sins might be forgiven is said to be arbitrary and illogical by the Christian critics. Why couldn't, as we said a moment ago, why couldn't God simply forgive on the basis of his mercy? You, you are sorry, and we'll just pretend like it didn't happen. I'll say I forgive you, and, and we'll go on. Why, could, why couldn't God do that? Why does Christ have to die? If some action was necessary for salvation to be bestowed, why, why couldn't something else have been done? It seems arbitrary, and I've given you quotes that kind of lay out those objections. One of the first things that Anselm says before he even gets down into the weeds of answering the question, one of the first things that he points out is that if, in fact, a man had been elevated to save the race then it would have immediately created a larger problem than the critics think has been created by the incarnation and atoning work of the Son of God. Notice what he says. This is page 3, number 2. Anselm says, quote, Do you not perceive that if any other being should rescue man from eternal death, man would rightly be adjudged as the servant of that being? Now, if this be so, he would in no wise be restored to that dignity which would have been his had he never sinned. For he who was to be through eternity only the servant of God and an equal with the holy angels would now be the servant of a being who was not God and whom the angels did not serve. You see what he's saying? One of the claims that the critics are making is, well, if someone had to save the people, why did God have to come down and be that man? Why couldn't some superman be raised up? Anselm says, then you would be a servant of that man, of that Savior, and you would, he would not be able, by definition, he could not elevate you even back to where the human race started in the garden, much less elevate man from that creational goodness into glory, right? So we start out very good, and man is the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of the earth. He answers only to God. He is, he is equal in terms of glory uh, to, to angels. He is a servant of God. They are all servants of God. And, and the goal here is for man to be elevated, to be brought to maturity into eschatological glory, right? Eschatological perfection. But what Anselm is pointing out is anyone other than Christ who saved the race could not even get the race back to where Adam was just on this basis alone, much less move him beyond creational goodness into eschatological perfection. Now, one of, the, one of the principles, and this is a philosophical point, but it's an important point to bear in mind as we work through the material there under number three, uh, Boso, in his discussion with Anselm, acknowledges this, which is very true. He says, quote, For the very same thing, from opposite points of view, is sometimes both just and unjust. And hence, by those who do not carefully inspect the manner, is deemed wholly just or wholly unjust. Now, now, what Boso is advocating here is not relativism. Uh, what he is acknowledging is that it depends upon, upon your point of view how you perceive certain things. So, for example, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is the crucifixion of the Son of God an act of justice or an act of injustice? I mean, I, mean, I think you have to say yes. 
Yes, of course. It's the greatest act of injustice in the history of the world and, praise God, the greatest act of justice. Right? But it's, it's unjust for man to crucify the Son of God, and yet God is enacting perfect justice in the sacrifice of the Lamb of God in order to take away the sins of the world. And that's what Boso is acknowledging, is that some of these things are only being looked at from one angle. It's like the blind man standing at the head of the elephant, feeling the trunk, and saying, an elephant is like a rope, or is like a hose. It, it, no, he's not. No, like one part of him is, but you're not seeing the, the full picture. And that's what Anselm is seeking to lead Boso uh, to do. Well, Anselm goes on, and he says, ultimately, we must accept divine revelation, whether it seems reasonable to us or not. Now, I included this not because it, it's such, so central to the advancing of his argument, but to make sure that you understand, Anselm believes that we believe not based on reason, but based on grace. He believes that we come to understand through faith, but we believe through grace, and Even though Anselm is presenting a philosophical treatment of a theological question, that's not because he does not give central, primary, ultimate authority to the Word of God. He's not elevating man's reason, but he's really just pointing out that even these truths that we believe by grace are reasonable. The logic is accessible even to an unbeliever. You You can work through this and say, yeah, I see that. Yeah, that makes sense. But ultimately, there are things in the Christian faith, there are mysteries that may seem illogical, may seem unreasonable to an unbeliever, and yet, if God says it's true, it is true. He says, quote, The will of God ought to be a sufficient reason for us when He does anything, though we cannot see why He does it. For the will of God is never irrational. That's really good. So lest you think of St. Anselm as just this cold, calculating philosopher who is trying to remove the authority of Scripture from the conversation, make sure that you remember that quote. Well, Anselm begins talking about the humiliation that Christ endures in his incarnation and yet points out that the incarnation does not involve any humiliation of God. He distinguishes very carefully the divine and human natures of Uh, the God-man. He says there at the bottom of page 3, quote, they who speak thus, who are saying this doctrine of the incarnation demeans God, humiliates God, it is beneath his dignity. Anselm says, they who speak thus do not understand our belief. For we affirm that the divine nature is beyond doubt impassable. In other words, it cannot be changed, it does not suffer, it it is not moved by external forces. And that God cannot at all be brought down from his exaltation, nor toil in anything which he wishes to effect. But we say that the Lord Jesus Christ is very God and very man. One person in two natures, and two natures in one person. When therefore we speak of God as enduring any humiliation or infirmity, we do not refer to the majesty of that nature which cannot suffer, the divine nature in other words, but to the feebleness of the human constitution which he assumed. And so there remains no ground of objection against our faith, for in this way we intend no debasement of the divine nature, but we teach that one person is both divine and human. In the incarnation of God, there is no lowering of the deity, but the nature of man we believe to be exalted. Now, there's a couple of different things here. One, you might read that and you might think that's not true. 
I mean, you could say that. Oh, that's, that's not true. Philippians 2, we read on Sunday, and, and, and Christ humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross, right? Christ. Who is Christ? The God-man. Anselm's point is fundamental to a Chalcedonian understanding of the one person, two natures of Christ. And he's saying, look, we talk about the Son of God's humiliation all the time, but we don't mean that his divine nature was debased, demeaned, humiliated in any way. We're saying that in his human nature, he is submitting to the Father. He is submitting to the experience of temptation, to the experience of weakness, to death on the cross. But he says it's not that the divine nature is going through some kind of uh, lowering. It's that human nature is going is being raised, is going through a process of elevation and glorification. And I think that's exactly right. And it's really insightful and helpful. What is sin? Anselm has to deal with this question in order for us to understand what our problem really is. He answers it this way, quote, Therefore to sin is nothing else than not to render to God his due. Whatever you owe God... If you do not give it, that is sin. Well, what do you owe God? Anselm develops this idea extensively, and he says you owe him everything. You you owe it to him to be like him. You owe it to him to have every thought, every desire, every part of your being and existence oriented toward God. And you have not given God his due. Now, you might say, well, that's, that's not as good a definition as the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 14. And I do love Westminster Shorter Catechism question 14. But I've got to tell you, this is really good. This is really helpful. Because what it, what it helps us to think about is that sin is not just this legal category. It's a re- relational offense. It's a transgression of a relationship. You were made by God, like God, for God, and sin is failing to acknowledge that in your thoughts, desires, words, actions. You are not giving God what he is due. And by the way, that definition of sin is going to be really important in Anselm's work, not only in explaining why Jesus had to die, but in explaining to Boso why you cannot be saved by your works. There's a lot there that I, that I don't have time to go through. Um, let me skip ahead just a little bit. At the bottom of page four, under letter G, I do need to say one word about this. I would like to do, you know, well, I'm not going to say I'd like to do an entire class on this because then you're going to ask me to do it and I'm not going to do it. But one of the most interesting parts of this book is also the part that commentators uh, are, um, contest the most. And that is, Anselm believes that God before the foundation of the world has a certain number of elect people and angels that will be saved. No problem so far, right? He seems to believe that that elect number has some relationship to the idea of a perfect number, which was being thought about in mathematics. Um, May or may not. He's not super explicit about that. But one of the things that he says multiple times in in the work, one of his operating assumptions, is that Because the angels would not have any opportunity for redemption and reconciliation, the number of angels who fell has to be made up by the reconciliation and redemption of men. Now, he acknowledges 
more men could be saved than just the angels that fell, but at least as many angels as fell, that many men have to be saved in order for that perfect number that is known only to God to be achieved. Now, commentators will say, this is just obviously absurd, this is just obviously unbiblical, and I would say, I don't know that it's absurd or unbiblical. I would say he's saying some things that he doesn't have scripture for, I mean, he's, he's asserting certain things based upon what seems logical to him that the Bible doesn't say. For example, that the number of fallen angels has to be offset by a certain number of elect men who are redeemed by the blood of Christ. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about that. But I don't think you should dismiss that section quite as quickly as modern interpreters want to. Because I think Anselm is actually making a point there that might be worth thinking about. Because he is thinking about salvation in cosmological terms, not just in terms of man, but in terms of man and angel together glorifying God in the new heavens and earth. Whether you find this section weird, implausible, or just completely wrong, it doesn't detract from the rest of the work. I'm just simply warning you that it's there. But I'm telling you that it's there as well because these chapters where Anselm is developing this idea actually give us some insights into his eschatology, and it really is beautiful and brilliant. He believes uh, about the end of all things what we've preached here many times. Let me read to you from the modern, a more modern translation of, uh, of Book 1, Chapter 18. He says this, quote, We believe that the present physical mass of the universe is to be changed anew into something better. We believe that this will not come to pass until the number of elect humans has reached its final total, and the blessed city to which we have referred has been brought to completion. Also that, after the completion of the city, the renewal will follow without delay. He's not imagining some kind of annihilation of physical material existence and we float around on the clouds like Casper the Friendly Ghost. He has a very material, earthly conception of the glory that awaits God's people. Now, I told you that that, um, Anselm has some sections in here that show a remarkable ability to do biblical theological analysis. Let me give you just a couple of examples of that on page 5. In the same chapter, book 1, chapter 18, where he's talking about kind of the weirdness about the angels, he says this, Had not Adam sinned, God might yet put off the completion of that state until the number of men which he designed should be made out, and men themselves be transferred, so to speak, to an immortal state of bodily existence. That's a fascinating sentence to unpack. We do not have time to unpack it. I would encourage you to reflect a little bit upon what he's affirming there. But we continue, he says, For they had in paradise a kind of immortality, that is, a power not to die. But since it was possible for them to die, this power was not immortal, as if indeed they had not been capable of death. But if God determined to bring to perfection at one and the same time that intelligent and happy state, talking about the angels, and this earthly and irrational nature, talking about man, it follows that either that state was not complete in the number of angels before the destruction of the wicked, but God was waiting to complete it by men when he should renovate the material nature of the world, 
or that if that kingdom were perfect in number, it was not in confirmation, and its confirmation must be deferred, even had no one sinned, until that renewal of the world to which we look forward. Or that, if that confirmation could not be deferred so long, the renewal of the world must be hastened, that both events might take place at the same time. What is he saying? He's saying that the eschatological New Jerusalem, the new heavens and earth in its consummated and glorious form, could not ultimately take shape and appear until man, even if he had not sinned, had reached a state of spiritual maturity that was the goal of this probation in the garden, and secondly, until the human race had reached the full number of those whom God had elected to save. I see no problem with that. That seems self-evident to me in the biblical text. And it's a brilliant point. It's a brilliant point. What is he doing? He's looking at salvation in much larger terms. We're American Christians living in the 21st century. We tend to think about salvation in terms of me and Jesus. I sinned. I need my sins forgiven. I have a relationship with Jesus. I might be a member of a church. I might not. It, you know, whatever, right? You know, one day Jesus is going to come back. He's going to rescue me from all of this like the good Gnostic that I am. I'm going to escape this material existence. Anselm has a completely different worldview. Completely different picture of this. He's looking at this in a pre-modern context, in a pre-enlightenment way, in a very biblical way. And he's thinking about Adam, and he's thinking about those trees, and he's thinking about God walking in the garden, and he's thinking about the fact that God has written the names of the elect in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, and how are we going to get from here to here, even if we don't have sin, we've still got sanctification leading to glorification, we've got multiplication leading to consummation, and we've got the union of the heavenly realm and the earthly realm in that glory. That's pretty, that's pretty awesome. He goes on with that, but I don't have time to do all of that. Um, in the next section, uh, letter H, and I am going to start skipping here really, really quickly, um, but I do need to point this out. You might think medieval theologian, he doesn't even know the gospel, Right? because the gospel wasn't discovered, invented, whatever it is you think it was, uh, in the Reformation in the 16th century. Which, by the way, if the gospel was invented in the 16th century, we all need to repent, right, and return to Rome or the Eastern Orthodox Church. But, of course, that's not what any of the Reformers believed. And there's nothing in Anselm that you would find contrary to the gospel that the Reformers affirmed. Uh, Anselm proves in, in one section of this work that religious piety and good works are completely inadequate to repay God and thus secure salvation for man. And so Anselm begins turning the questions around on his interlocutor. He begins asking Boso, tell me then what payment you make God for your sin. What, what are you, you going to do? Like, you're a sinner. How are you going to be saved? And Boso says, well... I, uh, repentance, a broken and contrite heart, self-denial, various bodily sufferings, pity and giving and forgiving, and obedience. Well, that sounds good, right? It's Christian life, right? So if you could just be a good Christian, maybe then God would forgive you. Anselm says, what do you give to God in all of these? What are, what are you actually giving? Well, Boso says, do I not honor God when for his love and fear in heartfelt contrition I give up worldly joy and despise amid abstinence and toils the delights and ease of this life and submit obediently to him, freely bestowing my possessions and, my possessions and giving to and releasing others? Well, Boso is saying, well, I, I, I'm giving God a lot of things here. And what does Anselm say? He says, don't you realize that you already all owe all of that to God? You would owe all of that to God if you weren't a sinner. Ever, all of it. All of it. 
Anselm unpacks that in the paragraph that follows that. I'll let you read it later. You already owe all of that. In other words, what, what are you repaying to God? You're, you're just saying, I, I screwed up, but, but now I'll, 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 try to, I'll try to actually meet the requirements. But, but you already have this deficit. You already have this issue. Relationship has been broken. How is that going to be forgiven? Anselm is denying the possibility of works righteousness. He is also, by the way, undercutting a conception of Christ's work that's based on merit. That's not his understanding of the atonement. What he sees is Christ acting in atonement, in in atoning for man's deficit, and enabling him then to progress toward the maturity that God originally intended. Again, it's, it's it's more about maturity than it is just a balance sheet. If you're thinking satisfaction view of atonement, that's so cold, that's so legal. Not in Anselm, it's not. He's thinking about relationship. He's thinking about this organically. He's saying, you have fractured this relationship. You owe something to God as your sovereign. And you have robbed him of that which you owed to him. It's not about a balance sheet. It's about reconciliation. And yes, restitution is a part of that. Um, Anselm has some brilliant things to say about what Adam's responsibility in the garden was and, and man's inability being a culpable inability. He has this great illustration where he talks about a servant. He says, if you've got a servant working for you and you tell your servant, do you see the ditch or you see that pit over there? Don't jump into that pit. And the servant jumps into the pit. And then the servant's at the bottom of the pit and can't get out of the pit. And you say, get out of the pit. And he can't get out of the pit. You say, well, it's not his fault. He can't get out of the pit. It's like, no, it's 100% his fault. I told him not to jump in the pit. It's a great illustration. Anselm's point is that we are disabled in Adam. We have this problem that we were born outside of the Garden of Eden. I was born in Birmingham, Alabama, which is not the Garden of Eden, right? I'm already born outside of that fellowship, outside of that relationship, outside of life, outside of goodness, outside of righteousness. I'm in the pit, but I can't climb out of the pit. I can't get out. Christ has to come get me. So why did God make man? Page 7, letter J. Anselm says, quote, It ought not to be disputed that rational nature was made holy by God in order to be happy in enjoying him. I mean, you thought the Westminster Assembly made that up, right? Wherefore, rational nature was made holy in order to be happy in enjoying the supreme good, which is God. Therefore, man, whose nature is rational, was made holy for this end, that he might be happy in enjoying God. He goes on in the same, uh, a couple of chapters later, this is in book two, He says, quote, Therefore is it necessary for him to perfect in human nature what he has begun. But this, as we have already said, cannot be accomplished save by a complete expiation of sin, which no sinner can effect for himself. This is why God made man. And God is not going to throw up his hands and quit. God is not going to say, well, I tried. I I made man to enjoy fellowship with me forever, but that didn't work out. Oh, well. God's going to accomplish his purpose. God is going, what does God say over and over and over in the prophets, especially Ezekiel makes this point uh, at length? Uh, God is going to act to save his people for his own namesake, to vindicate his name, to demonstrate something about him 
Not because they are just such lovable, you know, pitiful people, but because God is going to uphold his promises and work. Now, one of the questions that Boso asks is, does this make grace necessary? In, and if it's necessary, it's, it's not grace anymore. If, is it necessary rather than gracious to say that God made man for this purpose, man is now disabled in sin, and therefore Christ has to come and save them? Aren't you saying that God was obligated to show grace? One of the things that we've said before, but now you're seeing where, you know, uh, who's, who's thinking we're following as we're reading Scripture in this way, uh, Anselm says, no, 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 God didn't have to do any of this. God didn't have to create. God didn't have to save. God did not have to glorify, but God can obligate himself by his promise. And that's what's happened here. The work of salvation is necessary in the sense that God has made promises obligating himself to that work. It's not ultimately necessary, but it's covenantally necessary. Well, as far as I could tell, that's exactly right. God makes promises to man by his covenant, and he takes responsibility for fulfilling them. We could, we could see, for example, the covenant-making ceremony in Genesis chapter 15 as an illustration of that. Well, Anselm then develops the idea that Christ, as the God-man, is the one who is ultimately able to come and do what only God can do, but which man is obligated to do. He says on page 8, Uh, at the very bottom, under number two, quote, For the restoring of human nature by God is more wonderful than its creation. For either was equally easy for God, but before man was made, he had not sinned, so that he ought not to be denied existence. But after man was made, he deserved by his sin to lose his existence together with its design, Though he had never wholly lost this, that is, that he should be one capable of being punished or of receiving Christ, God's compassion. For neither of these things could take effect if he were annihilated. Therefore, God's restoring man is more wonderful than his creating man, inasmuch as it is done for the sinner contrary to his deserts, while the act of creation was not for the sinner and was not in opposition to man's deserts. How great a thing it is also for God and man to unite in one person, that while the perfection of each nature is preserved, the same being may be both God and man. Who then will dare to think that the human mind can discover how wisely, how wonderfully, so incomprehensible a work has been accomplished? And this is in a work where Anselm is saying the logic of this is accessible to any person. Any rational mind can perceive the logical coherence of these ideas. And yet at the same time, he's saying not even the believer who's been regenerated by God, who is the recipient of grace, can truly comprehend something this wonderful. He talks about the logical beauty of the gospel in this work. And I hope that if you read this work, I hope that that's what comes out to you, is the the, the beauty of the logic of the gospel he says uh, on, on page 9, quote, No man except this one ever gave to God what he was not obliged to lose or paid a debt he did not owe. But what he, Christ, freely offered to the Father, what there was no need of his ever losing, and paid for sinners what he owed not for himself. Therefore he set a much nobler example that each one should not hesitate to give to God for himself what he must at any rate lose before long, since it was the voice of reason. 
For he, when not in want of anything for himself and not compelled by others, who deserve nothing of him but punishment, gave so precious a life, even the life of so illustrious a personage with such willingness. Christ didn't owe anything. He didn't deserve any retribution. He took retribution freely. He gave abundantly. And Anselm says, we deserved to be punished. And we do stand to lose our lives. How much more should we gladly give to God all that we are, all that we have, in view of what Christ has done for us that we never could do? Uh, just a couple of minutes. I know, I know our time is out. Uh, but, but three weaknesses I will mention very quickly, and then three applications, and, and the lesson's yours. Uh, Deus homo is not infallible. You can make criticisms of it in several places. I think they are minor criticisms, but I'm going to nonetheless draw your attention to a few. Uh, first of all, I think that Anselm's discussion about the, the reason that Christ was sinless in his conception, conception by the Virgin Mary, I think his discussion of that is weak. But I think it's a completely understandable weakness because he's not allowing himself to use Scripture to explain it. And this is admittedly an aspect of the gospel that although you can, you can understand why Christ would need to be sinless, it's difficult to just rationally understand how that could come about. Well, he's a true man. He's a descendant of Adam in that sense because he's biologically connected to his mother Mary. And so it's a, how is he not sinless? Well, the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us it's because the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary so that the true fatherhood in operation there is the fatherhood of God and not of Joseph or of Adam. But because Anselm is not dealing with biblical texts, his discussion of that is is a little bit uh, weak. Secondly, his discussion of the omniscience of Christ in book 2, chapter 13, I think is a little bit... uh, uh, sideways. Uh, it, really, even that is too strong. I'm trying to think of a, of a polite way of, of putting this. Anselm, Anselm argues that Christ was omniscient at every moment, at every point of his life and ministry. However, uh, Jesus very clearly affirms there were certain things that he did not know during his earthly ministry. Uh, for example, Mark chapter 13, uh, verse 32, he says, of that day, uh, neither the Son uh, nor no man, nor the son, but only the father knows, right? Uh, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem there, I think. But anyway, uh, Christ is not exercising the full knowledge that he has as God in his state of humiliation. Instead, he is relying upon his human nature in his earthly ministry and relying upon the Holy Spirit. That's a whole other discussion. Now, I say that Anselm is a little bit wrong about this, but I'm not entirely sure that Anselm's actually wrong about this. Because if you read the section, I think all that Anselm is trying to point out is that Christ is truly God. And in the divine nature, as God, he's omniscient. I, I, that may be all that Anselm's trying to affirm. And in, in so far as that goes, he's exactly right. But he does not allow for the statements of ignorance that Christ himself would make. And so I would just simply draw your attention to that. And then, of course, the question of the angels, uh, the, the perfect number of the elect, the relationship between fallen angels and uh, redeemed men. Don't let confusion about that, don't let questions about that um, concern you with regard to the work as a whole. It really doesn't detract from the overall argument, even though it is obviously important in Anselm's mind. Three applications. One, credo ut intelligum. 
I believe in order that I might understand. Anselm believes that we become Christians by regeneration, not by reason. It is by faith that we receive Christ. It is not by human rationality. And yet, the truths of the Christian faith are accessible to those who believe as we exercise our minds in loving the Lord. And again, it's not, he's not ta- calling for ir- an irrational faith, a blind leap in the dark, but he is saying that we believe in order that, as believers, by the grace of God, we might better understand the truths that we have confessed. This is the process laid out in the Great Commission. What does Jesus say? Make disciples by baptizing them and then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. You don't teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, and then they say, okay, okay that makes sense. Yes, I sign up. And, and, and I'm baptized. You make disciples by proclaiming the gospel to them. The Holy Spirit causes them to awake and be alive. They come to themselves like the prodigal son in the pig pen, and they return to their father's house and say, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And then they are taught the things that Christ has uh, revealed to his disciples. Secondly, we should delight in doctrine, and that should lead us to doxology. If, if the study of theology is boring, and, it, and if it was boring tonight, that's my fault. It's not the ideas. These truths are glorious. Like, if you're bored when you're reading your Bible, you're doing it wrong. That's part of your sinful nature. The problem is not the material. The problem is the reader in this case. Sometimes it's the preacher, right? Sometimes it's the listener. But we are to delight in the teaching of God to delight in the truth, goodness, and beauty of our Lord that he has made known concerning himself. And that should lead us then to worship God, to praise God. That's what Anselm says at the very beginning. This is what he wants to come out of this exercise. He wants you to dig deeper, to explore more thoroughly the importance, the necessity of incarnation and atonement for our salvation. And he wants that to lead you to praise the Lord. So, I would encourage you, as you're studying, as you're reflecting on sermons, as you're reading theology, as you're you're going through a study like this, let that turn into praise, right? Read your Bible and then sing the doxology at home. Say a prayer and thank God for the great things he's made known concerning himself. It should increase your joy. It should increase your reverence. It should make you more enthusiastic in your worship. And it should lead to greater uh, holiness of life. And then third, look at how gracious the historic gospel of the Christian faith is. Again, I cannot say enough. If you think that the church falls away, disappears, and then is somehow rediscovered, uh, restored in the Reformation, you believe something that none of the Reformers believed and that I believe is, is explicitly unbiblical. Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It does not disappear. Are there human traditions? Absolutely. Are there today? Yeah, still are, right? Is, is, it, is it just the Roman Catholic church that needs reformation? No, I mean, it's like the Reformed church too. And the Anglican church and the Lutheran church and the Methodist church and the Baptist church and every, every, every church needs repentance and reformation. But what do Christians believe is the good news. Well, you get a beautiful picture of it in Cordo Deus Homo. If you imagine that the doctrine of sola gratia, 
or ideas about divine sovereignty were invented by the reformers, then you just don't, I mean, respectfully, you just don't know your church history well. You just haven't read church history. Because these ideas are not just in the Bible and not just in John Calvin or Martin Luther. They're in the church fathers. They're in the patristic writings. They're in the medieval theologians. In many ways, Anselm reads, as we said, like a medieval reformed theologian. The problem is he lives about five or 600 years before most of the reformed theologians. And so I want to encourage you to see the continuity of the faith, the heritage of faith, the celebration of grace, and to appreciate that we still have things to learn from our medieval forefathers. A lot, I think a lot of Presbyterians, you know, we, we read our Bibles, and then we read John Calvin and everybody who came after him. But there are some, there are some people that were reading the Bible and thinking God's thoughts after him between the death of the Apostle John and the conversion of John Calvin. (laughs) There were a few people in there, believe it or not. And Anselm was one of them. And he is one that I would commend to you as a brother in the Lord who has much to teach us. If you don't read this work, that's okay. Maybe I should say that at the end. I don't want you to feel like, well, I need, I need to read medieval theology, patristic theology, all of these theological classics in order to be a real Christian, a better Christian, a good... No. No, you don't. It's one of the reasons we do classes like this in this church, is to give you a taste, to give you a sample, to say, you know, do you know how many books I will never read in my life? There's a lot. There's a lot. If I never bought another book, I, I will die before I read everything in my library. Right? You can't read everything. And that's Okay. And if you say, you know what, I really enjoyed this, or, or not, but uh, I really enjoyed this, but, but I'm not going to read Quarter de Deus Homo. Okay, that's okay. That's all right. But now I hope you know something about it, and you appreciate what you know about it, and you can see in some of these quotations, this was a brother. This was a brother. This is one of my fathers in the faith. And thank God for Anselm uh, and, and the way that he has helped God's people for many, many centuries since. Okay, let's, let's bow together and close in prayer, and then if you've got questions, we'll, we'll stay for a minute. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your servant, Anselm. Uh, thank you for the work that he did uh, in your church and on behalf of your people. We are thankful that we can sit at his feet and learn and rejoice in what we learn uh, as he meditates upon your truth. We pray, God, uh, that you would protect us from error. We realize that no man is uh, infallible, uh, but we are all fallible interpreters of your word, and yet we are thankful that many men have been faithful in doing so. And we pray that we would have the humility and the willingness uh, to listen and to learn from those who have gone before. Bless us now as we return to our homes. Prepare our hearts for the Lord's day. Give us joy and peace through believing in your Son. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.